Look, look, I fucked it up. You don't need to. You don't need to cover me, man. I look. I'll, I'll, I'll own my fuck up. I'm good with it. Man. I appreciate it, but, but just let it lay. I'm, I'm stupid. I'm fine with it. I was mad as hell, and I'm not gonna take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on, one of you nuts has got any guts. What's but a smile on that face? You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be, and I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let the healing begin. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. And we are at episode 200, believe it or not. That's a lot of time and a lot of episodes, so I don't ever want to hear anyone complaining that there's not enough podcasts to listen to, because if anything, there's too much uh, but for our 200th episode, you'd think we'd be doing something special, or you'd think we'd be doing a movie I really like from my childhood, but no, we just keep kind of chugging along. So we're taking a look at a movie from 1967 called Wait Until Dark, which I'm sure will bring in all the downloads, because people are waiting for our take <laughs> on Wait Until Dark. Uh, and to do that, uh, I have someone who mentioned this movie to me uh, off, kind of off recording, like after we were talking about mm-hmm. the movie Hush. Uh, about how that kind of takes some of the uh, the tropes of someone who has a, a disability and how they survive in a bad situation. Uh, so to talk about Wait Until Dark, I have Chris Maynard from Following Films. Hello. All right. Well, thanks for being here yet again. And thanks for, uh, I guess, recommending this movie. Is that uh, okay. like too strong of a That's... word is recommending? Well, no, 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 no. It, well, I think I, the way that I put it to you was this is a movie that I really love, but I don't think time has been kind to it. And so it's something that it's, I think if you see it at a certain point in your life, um, it still holds up. There's a little bit of nostalgia for it, but I don't know how it would be for someone like yourself seeing it for the first time. Um, You are in a world of having seen Don't Breathe. Um, So you're seeing a similar, oh, okay, you haven't seen that one yet. (laughs) No, no, I've seen it. I just hate hate the third act of that movie and it should be. Oh, well, that's kind of what I was going to get to. There's no turkey baster scene in this movie, so it might feel really cute and innocent yeah, by comparison. I, I think that's a, a better choice. <laughs> Any anytime you have a choice between using a turkey baster or not, go with not. That's like 99% of the time, not is the right answer. Uh, but the reason really we're doing Wait Until Dark is because Fences is coming out, so I wanted to take a look at kind of a well-thought-of film that was based on a stage play, which is what we have with Fences. And this actually was kind of, I mean... I don't want it to sound mean, but I was a little surprised to see how how well it did kind of with awards. Like, this was a really well-thought-of movie. So this was something I just – it was one of the many I was thinking of, and then I had one particular listener who was like, hey, I, I have a copy of this on DVD that I haven't opened yet, so you should do that one. And I was like, all right, that's a good enough reason for me. <laughs> it's the Mike Denniston school of picking movies. Like, I own this, so I might as well have an excuse. So So that's why we're doing Wait Until Dark. Fair enough. And now that you've done it, um, is this something you wish you... Because out of all the films that are based on stage plays, <laughs> you could have gone down. There's a lot of different directions. We'll we'll get to that. But before okay. we do that, do you have... Uh, we're doing this, of course, on Wait Until Dark, and the theme is trust. So do you have a couple movie recommendations for us? Kind of based on trust. Um, the first thing that came in mind when I was thinking about trust um, would be something we talked about a couple weeks ago, Gone Girl. 
And if you haven't seen Gone Girl, then I then don't stop know. listening right now and go fucking watch Gone Girl. What is wrong with you? It was fantastic. Yeah, basically, and and that that's the whole idea behind that movie. It's this idea of trust and putting your faith in somebody that is really not in your that that actually they're what might seem like they don't have your best interests at heart, but they actually end up work to their best when they're with each other. So okay. yeah, I think that movie ultimately has elements of trust to it. And it's a, just, I'll, I'll find any way to squeeze in a Fincher movie. Yeah. No so. issue with that. That is a good choice always. And another one that I was thinking of when I was watching this, cause I started, uh, I, I don't know how much it really works with this particular theme, but I was thinking about sort of over the top Alan Arkin performances and <laughs> good Little enough sunshine. Oh yeah. <laughs> Man, what a double feature that would be. (laughs) Good God. We will definitely get to that, too. I really like Little Miss Sunshine. I feel like that's one of of those movies that, as we get further away from it, seems to have – seems to get maligned. Like, people are like, ah, that movie's not that good. But I really enjoy that movie. I would would watch that again for sure. That's a good one. It's a – I think people will use that sort of cynical – it's a – sounds like people are putting thought into it, but it's just, you know, kind of like repeating a hashtag where they'll say it's, you know, oh, that's the, you know, that's the cutesy Sundance movie or that's, you know, the little whimsical kind of movie, that thing. It's it's like saying a movie is Oscar bait or something where you're not actually putting thought into something. And it's, and I think yeah, if you watch that fun. movie, that movie has some depth to it. That's not just oh God, like yeah. a cute I, I, movie. No, no. There are Absolutely. cute, there are cutesy Sundance movies, <laughs> but I wouldn't throw yes. Little Miss Sunshine under the bus with you know movies like Me and Earl and The Dying Girl. Like that's that's not. Well, I, I was actually going to think of that one too. That there's a big backlash towards that one now, and Juno had a backlash yep. for several years afterwards. Um, so any of those movies that become the big indie darling out of Sundance, um, and this last year, I would you know uh, this. Year, in fact, uh, 12 Years a Slave, uh, or not 12 Years a Slave, I'm sorry, um, Jesus Christ, uh, Birth of a Nation. Um, oh, just any black movie about the... slavery, just throw them all. No, 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 no. I, I was gonna, I was going with the the the, t- the title on it, and yeah. then it's like, no, 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 what's the really racist movie from the third? Okay, yeah, okay, uh, Birth of a Nation, that's there we the go. one, yes. So I had to, you know, took me a second. I haven't seen that one yet, but there's been a big backlash on that one also, um, where there was, I remember. At the time, there you know, standing ovation coming out of Sundance and all that, and then yeah. now it's something that really I, I don't know how much of that has to do with sort of the director's extracurricular activities or if <laughs> that's, that's one the way to put it. Itself. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I think I think that's a kind of an interesting discussion because I think there's a lot of variables that go into that. There's some that it's just like uh, like I think there's a a section of film criticism, especially amateur film critics like people like me, people on Twitter, yeah, who, yeah who are just like everybody likes it. Fuck that movie. That movie fucking sucks because everybody likes it. I don't like it. I'm going to be different. I'm going to stand out and not like something that like is almost – and nothing is objectively good, right? Like everything's subjective. But like there are some things where it's like, okay, you're just you're just being difficult now. Like please just <laughs> calm down. But there's also this other portion where I think when they – I think they even call it like festival fever, like people see a movie that's yeah. decent at a festival and they've seen 10 movies in three days and they're so desperate for something good that it gets a standing ovation and people lose their mind. And then when they go see it again in a theater or at a screening, they're like, oh, well, it's not that good. Like this, maybe we overreacted a little bit. So, Well, I, I don't know. Me, it, as far as I'm concerned, if the guy who 
is 42 years old and has a Deadpool sticker on the back of his camera. There it is. If, if, it, if it wasn't for him, then fuck it. I'll be on board with, you know, the La La Land and whatever indie darling is coming out of Sundance that year. That's right. I mean, we're, we're now living in a world where Deadpool has been nominated for an award. It got nominated for a Golden Globe, like for best comedy. Really? Yeah, that happened. So this is the world we live in. Award nominated film, Deadpool. That's That's where we're fucking at. <laughs> All right, uh, so we are going to take a break. Uh, I will talk about trust. Uh, there'll be a very uh, – it's going to be a weird adjustment because I'm – you know, we're talking here just constantly talking shit. And then I'll be really professional and talk about trust for like nine or ten minutes and then we'll come back to this mode. So we're going to take a little break uh, and then uh, I'll talk about trust and then we'll come back with Chris to talk about Wait Until Dark. This is Chris Maynard. I'm host of the Following Films podcast. Every week I discuss a current release with one of the creative forces behind the film. Whether it's Giles Nutkins talking hell or high water, Leah Thompson discussing her work on Trouble with the Truth, or Jeremy Sandy chatting about his work on Deepwater Horizon. You can find our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or any place you find podcasts. Even better yet, you can go to followingfilms.com, check out our latest episode, get some film news, reviews, and all sorts of goodness. Uh, that was my son, Jacob. He says hello, and he really wants you to check out the show. All right, so it's time for the psychology section. So for today, we're talking about trust. So trust has a different, a bunch of different definitions, but it, typic- it typically refers to a situation characterized by the following aspects. One party is willing to rely on the actions of another party, and the, si- and the situation is directed toward the future, so it's an unknown. In addition, the person who is trusting abandons control over the actions performed by the people that they are entrusting. So as a consequence, you're uncertain about the outcome of another person's actions, and they can only develop and evaluate expectations. This uns- this uncertainty involves the risk of failure or harm to, to you, the person who's doing the trusting, if the other person doesn't behave as you think they will or you desire they will. So within social science, trust is a is definitely a subject of research constantly. In sociology and psychology, the degree to which you trust another person is basically you're measuring the belief in the fairness, benevolence, or honesty of another person or party. So the term confidence is actually what's used for a belief in the competence of another party. Based on recent research, a failure in trust actually can be forgiven more easily if it's interpreted as a failure of competence rather than honesty. So if it's something that they couldn't help, then you'll forgive it. But if it's something that they went about in a way to be dishonest, then not so much. So in sociology, they're concerned with the position and role of trust within social systems. So trust is really a social construct. It doesn't exist outside of our vision or our our understanding of it. This image can be real or imaginary, but that's what permits the creation of trust. Other constructs that are usually discussed with it are control, confidence, risk, meaning, and power. Now, as a society, we need trust because it it finds itself operating at this edge between confidence in what is known and new possibilities. So without trust, every possibility has to be considered, which basically will lead to nothing. It will lead to you doing nothing, you being inactive. So basically, trust is, in a way, it's kind of like a bet on one of these futures that is possible to happen, especially one that delivers benefits. So within sociology, there's kind of two distinct views. There's the macro view of social systems and the micro view of individual, of individual social actors. 
So on one side, the systemic role of trust gets discussed with kind of a disregard to the psychological complexity that that individual trust is involved in. So sociology also acknowledges that this contingency of the future creates a dependence between the social actors, between the person doing the the trusting and the person that they are trusting. Trust is seen as one of many possible methods to resolve this dependency. And it's, and it's actually a really good alternative to, to total and complete control. Okay, so let's talk about the psychology side of things. So in psychology, trust is basically just believing that the person who you're trusting will do what's expected. And usually this starts, this level of trust starts with the family. That's why, that's why those initial relationships are so important because if you realize you can't trust your family who you're supposed to be able to trust right away, it's much harder for you to trust people outside of that structure. According to Eric Erickson and his development of basic trust, he saw this as the first state of psychosocial development. And it usually happens within the, t- the first two years of life. So if you have success, you have feelings of security and optimism. And if you fail, then you get this orientation of insecurity and mistrust, which can result actually in some attachment disorders. So a person's tendency to trust others is actually considered a personality trait. Um, And and that's something that stays pretty static throughout life. And it's also one of the best predictors of subjective well-being. It has been argued by some that trust increases subjective well-being because it enhances the quality of your interpersonal relationships, and happier people tend to be better at fostering good relationships. Trust is also really important to the idea of social influence, to influence or persuade someone who is trusting, obviously. So the notion of trust is usually adopted to predict acceptance of behaviors by people and institutions. However, Once again, this perception of honesty, competency, and value similarity, which is like benevolence, is really essential. And there's three different forms of trust. One, trust is being vulnerable to someone even when they are trustworthy. Uh, Two, trustworthiness is the characteristics or behaviors of a person that will inspire positive expectations in others. And three, trust really, it's something where we have to be able to rely on people. And once trust is lost by an obvious violation of one of these three kinds, it's really hard to get back. There's actually been a lot of research recently on the notion of trust and the social implications of it. So one author, Barbara Mistal, points out that three basic things that trust does in the life in the lives of people. It makes social life predictable, which is really important. It creates a sense of community and it makes it easier for us to work together. All right, so before we get back to the movie, we're going to talk about one article. This is uh, entitled Trust in Close Relationships from Rempel Holmes and Zana back in 1985. So, uh, first, they started off talking about how trust is one of the most desired qualities in any close relationship. It's always mentioned right next to love and commitment as kind of the cornerstones of ideal relationships. And yet, at this point in the literature, there wasn't actually that much about it because it's a little hard to pin down. So what they wanted to do is is kind of propose a theory of trust and how it works. And they did mention that depending on the stage that the relationship was in, the experiences on which trust is based will change. And of course, the interpretations of those experiences will also progress from a more straightforward acceptance of behavioral evidence to kind of the attribution of these motives involved in the relationship. So they used a definition of trust from the 70s that was a confidence that one will find what is desired from another rather than what is feared. 
So they got 42 couples who volunteered, and then they, they got five more that they contacted directly. So a total of 47 couples. 30 of the couples were married, five were living together, and 12 were dating exclusively. And they gave these couples a bunch of assessments, of course. So they gave a test called the Rubens Loving and Liking Scale, um, where they had to indicate, uh, indicate agreement with statements about their partner on a nine-point scale, ranging from not at all true to completely true. And then they filled out a trust scale and a motivation scale. So and here's what they found. Like, as expected, love and happiness were closely tied to feelings of faith and the attribution of this intrinsic motivation to yourself and your partner. In terms of gender, women appeared to have more integrated, complex views of their relationships than men. All three forms of trust that they came up with were strongly related, and attributions of these motives in their partners seemed to be kind of self-affirming, whereas not so much with the men. And finally, there was a tendency for people to view their own motives as less self-centered and more exclusively intrinsic as opposed to their partner's motives. So it's interesting. We see – I think we kind of – in general, as humans, we look at ourselves in a better light than we look at other people. Um, so all these all these people in these couples, most of them saw the way they were doing things as the right way to do things and the, the thing that would make their relationships better, whereas not just other people, but even their own partners, they saw kind of as more selfish. So what they found about a what they found out about as far as trust. So the results show that trust is related in important ways to the success of any close relationship. Trust is a construct with a bunch of different elements, and these elements don't always make the same amount of contribution. The most important aspect of trust in these relationships appears to be faith, the belief that your partner will act in a loving and caring way no matter what the future holds. So it's really important if you're in a close relationship to feel that your partner is someone who is someone you can depend on and can be relied on in immediate objective ways. Now, for women, there are strong correlations, as I mentioned, between all three components of trust, whereas men showed this differentiation between the three elements. So for men, only faith and dependability were correlated. And even though they were correlated, for men, the associations were actually much weaker than for women. So it'll be interesting when we take a look at the movie, when we bring back Chris uh, to talk about the movie and the fact that we do have a main character who is female, who is in a situation where she has to decide who to trust, when to trust, and how much to trust. So we'll see if that all comes into play. Okay, so that's it for the psychological section. When we come back, we will bring in Chris Maynard from Following Films to talk about Wait Until Dark. Shannon. CG. Lauren and Mel form the Nerds of Prey, a group of ladies bonded by comics, gaming, film, television, and fandom culture. Hang out with them bi-weekly as they dig into the very things that make them loud and proud nerds. Available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. Also, check out their Patreon at patreon.com backslash nerds of prey. All right, so we're back to talk about the movie now. So, Wait Until Dark, we are coming from opposite ends of the spectrum here. This is something you have seen, I don't know if uh, once or many times, but definitely uh, longer ago than I did. This was my first viewing of it. So what is your history with Wait Until Dark? It's one of those movies that um, I think I saw this in eighth grade for the first time, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, when is that I was 1968, at, or, is that, no, that, that, that would have been, um, yeah, that would have been the release of this. Was it 68, 69? Yeah. Like 68. That? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, 
Um, this this was uh God, what would that have been? 89, 90, something like that. Okay. Uh, around that era, around that time, and I was at a girlfriend's house, and her got to talking with her mom about you know horror movies and kind of the Rosemary's Baby and those kinds of things and the old stuff from the 60s and you know fearless vampire killers and those kind of movies and she mentioned this one and so we went down to the blockbuster or whatever it was at that point when you go rent movies and we put this on and so it was one of those ones that it was I I think I saw it at that age when I was just starting to get out of the kind of gore aspect of it and I was really looking for something that was more and at the time, I guess this was a little bit extreme to some degree moments in it that it was, you know, kind of heightened. Um, the fact that you have a heroin mule in it and things like that, you know, might, yeah. might've been, <laughs> they were surprising for me to see from a movie from the sixties, but, um, yeah, it was just, um, it was one of those ones that it just really struck me at the time. And I really enjoyed mm-hmm. it because it was so simple in a way, you know, when you're putting this back to back with Hellraiser and whatever other nonsense I was watching at that Slightly time. Slightly different. Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just seemed so tame, you know, right. by comparison. And to see Alan Arkin as the heavy, the bad guy was just something that was so weird. And to see him with hair. Oh, so much hair. Yes. So, <laughs> so my experience with this was, was a little strange. I think some of it is just because like you mentioned to me earlier, that this is probably something that time is not kind to. Uh, and I would definitely agree with that. Like this is, there are some movies from, the 60s and 70s and some movies even older than that, that although they're dated, like you, you don't feel out of place watching it. But that's how I felt mm-hmm. like as a viewer in 2016, like, oh, this is this is almost sweet. Like this horror movie, like this is what passed <laughs> for scary, you know, or for heightened experience. Uh, so by no means did I not enjoy it or think it was bad or think the performances were bad, but it's not something we would see now. Like this type of movie, I don't think would get made because it would be like, where's the shock factor? Where's the gore? Where's where's the big trailer moment? Because mm-hmm. everything is these little moments throughout the film, which in a way was kind of refreshing to just <laughs> it was like. You know, it's like you're looking at something, you're like, oh, that's 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 cute. That's cute that that's the way they did that. And I and it sounds really negative, but it wasn't a negative experience. It was just kind of like I guess quaint is the best way to describe it in comparison to what we have now. So it's definitely a, an interesting experience to watch a movie from nineteen sixty eight and two thousand sixteen. Um, it can be, but I mean I'm I, I go back and forth on this. I think it's important to know um when the context of when a movie came out. Yes. Sometimes it matters to, you know, the film. If you're looking back at something like Dr. Strangelove, I think you can watch that today and have no context and you'll absolutely enjoy it. Yeah. I would, um, I, but I would it, argue that most films, you get a better experience of them if you do know the context. And that, that's what exactly what I was going to say after that. You can go into it that way, but if you actually understand a little bit about the cold war and you have an understanding of where we were as a country at the time and it enriches that experience and heightens that experience. And so, um, for me, there has to be something there that it needs to work on its own. Yeah. And now viewing it, that makes me want to go back and understand the context of when that movie Mm. was made. Um, and sometimes it can be something where I watch a movie and I, it seems so out of place for my understanding of that time period, Mm. um, that I will want to go back and understand like what else was going on that I may have missed at that time period. So, um, it's just watching older movies. Sometimes they feel like homework. And, yeah, a uh, little bit. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, I, and I think I think for a quote unquote normal viewer, that's a negative. But I think for someone who watches a lot of movies, I think sometimes that can actually be a positive. Like, okay, I don't understand this, and I'd like to know why. Because like mm-hmm. movies, especially movies that are mainstream that do really well like this, clearly I must be missing something if I'm not latching onto it. Because a large number of people latched onto it in 1968. So what am I? What am I missing? What's the context yeah. I need? And I find that interesting. Not necessarily, though, because, I mean, there's always been big popular things that just were garbage. I mean, it's it's just the way, you know, sometimes things capture the public's imagination. They're not very good. I mean, those Herbie the Love Bug movies were real popular for a little while. How dare you, Um, sir? (laughs) You're shitting on my childhood. How dare you? (laughs) And I I watched them when I was a kid, too. But, I mean, you know, I haven't gone back and watched them since my age has been in double digits. Oh, you don't 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 pop those back in every five years or so? Let me me see what Herbie's up to. That's not... (laughs) Just just for masturbatory purposes. Oh, well, obviously. Yeah, well, that, that makes perfect sense. Uh, so, uh, Wait Until Dark, as we mentioned, will be from 1967. Uh, and it's it's based on a stage play. So, And I think that's what I wanted to talk about most about the direction is I think sometimes when we talk about like, oh, this feels stagey. Uh, we say that a lot on shows mm-hmm. like this where it doesn't feel like a film. It feels like a stage play. And that definitely happens here. Uh, and especially in, I think, the first 20 to 30 minutes, I was like, I feel like I am sitting in a stage audience right now with these like sure. entrances and everyone stands in this certain specific place. And it doesn't feel very naturalistic. Do you, as you were watching it, did did that bother you at all? Or does that bother you in general when you watch movies that are quote unquote stagey? Okay, so that, that was actually something I started thinking about while I was watching this, that it did have that feeling and it stood out to me. Um, and I started thinking about modern movies that are sort of, you know, the uh, bottle episodes where they just, you know, right. kind of have that one uh, location. And, you know, you think of something um, like Buried even where it's in a coffin the entire movie. And that actually feels cinematic. Um, right. Or you can, you know, you and say what you will about the movie. Um, it, you know, if you think of uh, – Oh, what's the Tom Hardy one where he's in the car that came out a few oh, years Locke. ago? Oh, Locke. I love that movie. Locke, there you go. Big fan of that, um, yeah. So what I started thinking about, though, was um, it's. I think it's a technology thing, honestly, because mm. cameras have gotten to the point where you can put them in places you couldn't get them before you could move them. Sure. Um, the, the director, uh, Terrence Young, he did a bunch of Bond movies. Yep. Um, so you don't think about his movies being static or stale or you know really boring. Um, they, you know, He did action movies for the most part. And so – when I was watching this, the camera is moving um, and he's setting up interesting compositions. Um, I think about the moment when there's uh, they discover a girl in the uh, closet and she falls out. One of um, my, so I actually had that on my list. And I loved that shot. That moment I, I kind of adored. It was like it was what go. really brought me into the movie because it first like it's you know, we talked about like the, the heroin mule, and everything else going on. You're like, what did I just <laughs> sign up for? But that shot, I mean, it's to me, it's the one shot in the movie that's more of a horror movie trope at this point, but probably not 1967. This is probably where some of this started. So it was kind of cool to see that moment. And it was genuinely kind of surprising. It was a good, it was a good cinematic moment. That is one of the things I actually wrote down for positives on the direction. So when I think about shots like that, Mm -hmm. and I think that it is trying to elevate that, but there's limitations of what you can really do at the time. Maybe. Um, I, I don't know how, what the budgetary concerns were here. I'm assuming, you know, you're doing a Hepburn movie. There's got to be money to 
you know that you're spending there. It's a uh, most of it goes to her. Ayla stars. <laughs> just what's that? Most of it goes to her. Just here yeah. you go. No, that's you know that's a very good point. <laughs> so um, I don't know exactly what the story behind this movie is much beyond that, but I, I think that you know cameras have improved so much in the way you can move them around, the size of them. Um, that I think they're the camera's moving a lot here. I don't feel like there's a lot of sort of static two shots, and he's trying to right. set it up in different locations. And there's a conscious effort um, with the compositions that you can see throughout it. And so I just think that we've gotten spoiled to mm. movement, and we've gotten spoiled to you know sort of like limitless imagination at this point with what you can do with seed. You, you know, you watch home inv- invasion movies now, and something like Panic Room. There, there, I think there was over a hundred CGI shots in Panic Room. It's crazy. <laughs> so maybe we've come know, too far that, that, in the technology. Like, maybe you know, <laughs> not to talk so, I mean, and bad about Fincher in any way, but like maybe settle down a little bit. <laughs> right, and and I, I I don't know. It's a lot of the stuff that he's doing is invisible, and it just you know it's right. pretty seamless. The kind of work, the way that he uses it, but. You know, maybe they could have used a little bit of that at this time and it would have opened it up. But at the time, it probably didn't feel that way. And you also had. um, But then I think about it. And when I go back and watch something like The Apartment, I don't know if you've seen that or not. Oh, God, not in years. But yeah, I have seen it. Yeah. But I mean, that that doesn't feel like because you get wrapped up in it. Right. Um, If you go back and watch Glengarry Glen Ross, um, you know, you watch that and it. The, I think the dialogue and the performances can transcend that. You just don't give a shit anymore. Right. Um, so you're not paying attention to that. And that puts a lot of weight on the performers and the writing. Yeah. So and I don't I don't know that this movie has enough of that to carry it. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I, I don't think I don't think that it has those moments like it's not even a, a matter of the performance necessarily. I just don't think script wise it's strong enough to make you uh, unaware of everything else that's going on. It's interesting, though, that you brought up Terrence Young directing Bond movies and doing action, because I think one of the most unintentionally comic moments of this film is there's a weird extended fight sequence in the first 15 minutes of <laughs> this movie which is one of the most clunky i mean it looked like stage combat it looked like something you would see oh, at like an amateur opens the tripod and everything yes yeah. yes i mean it looks like something you'd see at like community theater like it was that <laughs> i was like what is happening right now you know like that was honestly kind of hard to watch and it it took me a couple minutes to kind of get back into the movie and be like okay focus we have to actually watch this movie now because that was like really rough to watch and it felt like uh, maybe you should have uh you know, you should have uh, worked on this a little harder before you filmed it because this part <laughs> and I know we're like we're just waiting to get to our big star and this is all set up. And it's and I think that's the part of the movie that feels the most stagey is this setup moment and you kind of mm-hmm. have to have it. But it was like kind of just awkward for me to even view it. Yeah, and it's you could almost just cut that out and go right into the conversation about the fingerprints and that would have mm. been enough. Yeah, you know he didn't. True. And if it was just him talking himself out of it, it would have been far more creepy. But I think it, you know, if you go back and watch those old Bond movies, they they time hasn't been kind there either. No, really, no. Far, I mean, I will always action. love them because, like we talked about, the nostalgia factor, right? Like, yeah. I grew up watching those with my dad, so I'm like, nope, that movie's great. Fuck you. I don't care what you say. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> but if I watch it with a critical eye, it's like, oh well. Thunderball's really confusing. Dr. No's really racist. Yep. It's really clunky. Like, it's kind of hard <laughs> yes. to get through, for sure. Yeah. I think movies like that will age poorly, especially action-driven films. Do you think something like, uh, to get into an idea of nostalgia, because I think the one from my age, that there's that sort of back and forth, there's 
two camps of people on it is a movie like The Goonies, where people absolutely adore that movie that are my age. And it's not a good movie. And I don't think it holds up well, but I absolutely love it. And I get that. I know that that's going back to a certain point in time where actually I even remember the trailers. I remember the three specific trailers that played before that movie. That's how well I remember that (laughs) afternoon Um, and just how much it stuck with me. And I absolutely adore that movie and I can watch it a hundred times, but I don't know how much that'll grab on to the, you know, next four or five generations. That's that's going to fall apart. You know, that's why they have stranger things. They can, they can, I mean, (laughs) will that be a gateway for them? Uh, I I hope it's a gateway to better things. Yes. (laughs) No, I think unfortunately it's going to be a gateway to like Halloween part three season of the witch for a lot of these people here. Oh God, that's horrible. (laughs) Don't put anyone through that. That's not good. All right. Uh, That's episode 201. Yeah. Coming up. Yes. That'll be episode 400. We'll come back to that (laughs) if I'm still breathing. (laughs) And that'll be really embarrassing when I'm a professional psychologist and I'm still doing a fucking podcast two days a week. That'll be really tragic. I don't think you can pull that off at that point as far as like any credibility don't you need to have like some distance between you and the patient at that point where they're not really supposed to see beyond the clipboard hey, and you're i have supposed patients to be... now so <laughs> whatever no one listens to this so i'm not i don't feel like there's that much danger uh the only other Fair thing enough. the only other thing as far as direction is one thing i noticed that i that i loved because it made i had just actually recently watched casablanca for an episode and sure. Uh, There was this kind of style of filming back in the 40s through kind of the 60s and the 70s when you have your your leading lady, you have this like soft focus moment when she first shows up. And we had that here, too. And that was kind of endearing that like, okay, this is the person we need to focus on. This is who we care about. And it was a very clear kind of visual signal of that, even if you and you probably didn't need that, especially back then, because she was such a known commodity at that point, like. I mean, it would be like, oh, by the way, you know, Scarlett Johansson is a star in case you didn't know. Like this is and it's more than that because we don't even have movie stars now like they did in the 50s and 60s, like it's a whole different thing. But I like that we had that little moment when she first appears on screen. It's I mean, she was a princess, wasn't she? She was married to like the Prince of Monaco or something, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, no, that's uh, Grace Kelly, right? Grace. Oh, I think you're right. I think you're no, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. But she was I mean, but she was basic. I mean, like, no, she wasn't a princess, but she was a Hollywood princess. Like she was royalty. Right. Like everything she touched, you were just like, well, it's Audrey Hepburn. So (laughs) look, I fucked it up. You don't need to. You don't need to try to help you out. Try to help you out. I'll I'll own my fuck up. I'm good with it. I I appreciate (laughs) it. But but just let it lay. I'm I'm stupid. I'm fine with it. So the thing is, like, I think you're right, though. She is kind of she was one of those last great movie stars where I honestly think if you ran into Audrey Hepburn in 1968, that that lighting just existed naturally around her. I think that's the world she walked (laughs) in. This halo. Yeah, exactly. And when you see actresses that they try to do that now, I remember um, Barbara Streisand. There was something about one movie she was doing where she was constantly shooting herself in this soft lighting and just the cinematographer whoever it was just started going nuts on it it's just like you're not that right and so yeah i can't i can't remember which one of her movies it was but there was something um and so i don't think you can get away with those things anymore because there's not that kind of reverence no. for you know actors anymore and, and maybe that disappeared with method you know that kind of went away that idea 
Yeah, I mean, Possibly I think it's, we, they I, need to be grounded. I think it's a combination of things. I think it's you know method going away, and it's just how much we know about celebrities' lives now that we didn't know in the '60s, yeah. where it's just like you can't possibly walk on hallowed ground anymore because we know what you had for breakfast, we know what you look like if you didn't take a shower, we know what your kids look like, all these things, and it's you, like no, you, nothing is sacred anymore. If you follow that stuff, you know it, it's it, there's two sides to it. One. Um, you know all those things if you go to those websites and if you read those tabloids. And two, you know those things um, and you're exposed to those things if your publicist is calling TMZ but when you're getting at the airport so that you're making sure that you're a known commodity. Yeah. I mean, Remember it, me. Not be, yeah, not to <laughs> yeah. be like that cynical, but that is that is a part of it. And you know, there, there was that period in time I remember where Demi Moore just disappeared for 10 years. She just went to Colorado yeah, and apparently got, got a little bit crazy. You can You can disappear if you want to. Yep. And so, you know, move to England, start doing movies out there. Nobody's going to care. Nobody follows people out there. <laughs> I think that's just good advice. Just, just move to England. <laughs> Get out of here. All right. Um, so anything else about the direction before we move into the acting? Or <laughs> Now that we covered that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> All right. Uh, so uh, as far as the actors, obviously we have Audrey Hepburn. So what did you think of her performance as Susie Hendricks? Do you feel like this holds up to modern audiences? Um, maybe, maybe not. Um, but I, the one thing I did like about it was the way that she was trying to pro she was trying to portray somebody that was newly blind. Um, that this is obviously something that, um, she doesn't have this, like the, the way that they would do it in a movie now would be that the blind person would have superhuman powers and could like pull out throats from somebody. Wait, without, is that not real? Is that not how it works? No. <laughs> and so shit. To, to be honest, I kind of appreciated the fact that she was fumbling and there's people around yeah. her directly and she's just kind of like it, something feels wrong here. Right. And you can see that in her, but she doesn't know exactly, exactly what that is. So she's just, a uh, you know, kind of hanging out, talking to herself. And I liked that she felt clumsy in her performance and I felt that it was intentional. Um, yeah. But that part of it, I, will that hold up? I, I don't know if it will because we're so used to um, the centers of films like this, you know, having that empowerment turn. Like Daredevil. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, yes. It, yeah. It's the Daredevil clause. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I was actually I was actually really impressed with this performance and I was worried anytime, you know, anytime you watch a movie from 30, 40 years ago, there's always this worry like it's there's a different kind of presentational style of acting. Uh, and the further you go back, especially because I think it's it's more closely tied to the method and it's more closely tied to stage acting, which is bigger and broader uh, and not as subtle. Uh, and I think, and, you know, and I think, I think there's good and bad about both. I think I tend to appreciate the subtler form of acting as we move through the eighties, the nineties, the two thousands and now, but there's a, there's definitely a certain charm to movies from, from this time period. And I, I like what you mentioned about her kind of stumbling through it because I did have a moment as I was first watching it going like, Oh God, she is so fucking clumsy. Like what is going on? Is this comedic? And then you, as you realize her kind of going through these discussions with her husband, like about, you know, him wanting her to be the best at this mm -hmm. and you, and you start to understand, Oh, this is, this is not just recent. Like this is brand new and you are figuring it out as you go along. And I really like seeing her journey through that and getting to a point by the end of the film where she has to be, you know, more on her toes and more aware than someone with all five of her senses working accurately. And and I think the arc of that 
of that of that movement really works. And I think yeah. if you if you look at her at the beginning of the movie and then someone were to tell you, oh, this is what she's going to have to get to, you're like, oh, she's dead. Like this is not going to happen. <laughs> like this is going to be bad for you. But I think it, I think it's convincing, and I think it works, and I think she deserves the accolade she got for this performance. And I think that's where the tension in the film um, is built on, is built on that clumsiness. It's the fact that, you know, you bought a ticket for this. You have an idea of what you're getting into. Um, you know, this is in a time when this is made that you actually didn't just stumble across something on Netflix or on cable. You know, right. you actually knew what you were getting into. So there wasn't that sort of surprise viewing unless maybe you just, you know, purchased a ticket for the random Audrey Hepburn movie and right. you know you went in. Um and, the, you know, so that part of it, you had an idea and you're seeing this in the beginning, the way that her characters, you're thinking, no, there's yeah, you're right. There's no way this woman's going to make it through this. She's going to be such a victim here. Right. Um, and and I, I really like the way that it, it's built on that. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the other characters in it are um, <laughs> <laughs> so are, are heavies, you know, here you have. You have Alan Arkin and his glasses and haircut. All right, this is just, what we really <laughs> need to talk about. OK, so. <laughs> I had no idea he was in this movie because uh, I didn't research it. I didn't look at it. I just like, I'm going to watch this movie and try and, oh, God, I almost said it, uh, go in blind uh, for this movie. But I did. Uh, and, you know, as the cast is popping up, I'm like, wait a minute. I know, I know that actor. I know that name. So I got kind of excited, like, because he's, he's an actor's work who I really enjoy. Like, even yeah. even when he's in subpar movies, I'm still like, yeah, but that guy's, I could watch him do anything. Like, that guy's great. Uh, what was the robot movie? Oh, was was he in, are you talking about Bicentennial Man? Was he no, in that no, one? No, 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 no. Uh, he was in a movie, I thought. See, I'm, I'm doing this again. I've been doing this terribly tonight. And don't, don't worry about it. Just c- continue to going down the path. Yeah, I think he was the Princess I'll, I'll of Monaco. I think that's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was the Prince of Monaco? Yes, yeah, that's right. Uh, so, and when he enters this movie, I was... I was really grateful because I think he is like the third or fourth character to show up and the other characters are all heavies and it's just kind of like, okay, like this, there's not a lot going on here. That's interesting to me. It's things I've seen before. And he comes in and the man has such charisma. Like the moment he walks on screen, your eyes are glued to him immediately. And I think to me, he saves the first 15 minutes of this movie because if he's not in it, like this is a real slog to get through, but he's so entertaining and engaging in those moments that even if I feel like it's ridiculous, it's still a joy to watch. I was so glad he was here in this movie playing, I guess, kind of three different characters (laughs) with all his props (laughs) and his, you know, his old man voice and his glasses and everything else going on. I I thought maybe you were saying that he was actually, this is sort of a uh, fight club and he's all three of the characters (laughs) and that's just somehow an extension of her subconscious or something. I'm going to write a blog post. Totally different. So did you figure out the uh, robot movie that you thought he was in? No, I'm just so curious. I'm I'm moving on. So, yeah, let's not focus on that one too much. (laughs) Um, But the the other, yeah, I I enjoy his performance. It's kind of ridiculous. It's kind of over the top. Yeah, I don't Um, think it's good. I just enjoy it. I think there's a difference between those statements. There's the there's the kind of bumbling guy, the larger of the three, yeah. and you know he's the clumsy kind fat of your guy. comic yeah. your, your comic relief, and then you have the sort of guy in the middle, you know the the actual intelligent one, the one that you have a little bit of sympathy for to some degree, I guess. Seems like the most um, out of these, the most human characters yeah. out of Agreed. all of them, I guess. 
And so I, I kind of I, I don't do you know who that was? The was that actor? Richard Crenna? Is that okay? I, think so. I thought he was actually I think his performance actually stands up and I think he's actually really good here. Yeah, I do, too. It's a uh, yeah, he plays the character of Mike. Uh, so it's one of those moments in the film, especially late in the film, where you almost feel bad about how you feel about him. Because you feel like mm-hmm. you should hate him, but they build his character up so well and his interactions with Audrey Hepburn seem so real, even though you know he's lying, that you do care about him by the end of the film, which is pretty impressive uh, from both an acting and a script writing perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that things like that, I don't know. Did You do, You didn't look into anything as far as the stage play. Um, oh, God, no. If any of these guys were holdovers from that or not. So. And because um, I'm I'm wondering if that was something that just developed over the course of, you know, having this out and, you know, doing it live for a year or two years, however long this existed as a play and kind of pulling that around. So I think that those sort of nuances in the performance can come ar- around in that that amount of time. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that this is one of the it's unfortunately you have kind of those three <laughs> tropes in the bad guys where it does feel like, you know, two of them are caricatures as opposed to actual characterizations. Um, And it does something to take away from the other two performances in the film. It's kind of like Audrey Hepburn and this guy in the middle are in one movie and then the bumbling (laughs) guy and Alan Arkin are in this totally different movie. Or some weird comedy. Yeah. (laughs) Like actually I just looked it up. The the original play uh, that opened on Broadway, the cast included Lee Remick, Mitchell Ryan and Robert Duvall. Of all people, oh, shit. so really, yeah. So Who, no, Robert Duvall. That's a that's a good. I'm guessing he was playing Mike. That that would be yeah. my guess, but yeah. So no holdovers. So that's interesting too. It's and, and I think that's you know we'll talk about this later. But with a movie like Fences, you know Denzel Washington played the role on stage as well as on mm-hmm. screen. So you get this kind of this longer experience of that character because he has played it before. He knows, he knows it in and out. So it's probably a much different, and he's directing himself too, which is a much different experience than we have here. So why is it that we can go see a film and there's a level of expectation with the visual style of the movie? Um, and we'll never say that play felt too stagey. Yeah, I think I think a lot of it is we we have these expectations of movies, especially now, uh, Mm -hmm. like you talked about, with all this kind of extra technology and the creativity and the abilities we have. So then to just to, quote unquote, just have a movie where two people are talking in a room, you're like disappointed, like, well, why? Why'd you spend all this money making this thing? I could just go see this in a theater, which I'll never fucking go to because theater is dying. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's this expectation of like, it's well, it should be a cinematic experience. And I'm one of these people that like, honestly, and you talked about this earlier, if the acting is good enough, if the writing is good enough, I that part of my brain gets shut off and I will not care because it's, yep. it's engaging. But I think there in this movie in particular, I don't think it reaches those heights. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's just I I'll take a good story. Yeah. You know, and maybe maybe there's a part of us all that we were really just trying to get back to that place that, you know, our mom is reading us a bedtime story kind of yeah. thing. And you get you get captured in that moment and you kind of give yourself over to it. And we're trying to find that part of our imagination. And as we grow older and we become more immersed in it and we're being entertained so fucking constantly now, our yeah. expectations have gotten to a point that's kind of absurd. And um, I'm, I'm just wondering, some side tangent thing, did you – because I kind of hate them, but it seems like I would be on board for it. But the Dogma 95 films. 
I don't think I've seen them. So it's it was kind of this movement that was, you know, um, Lars Van Trier was a part of it with all these guys where they were um, kind of breaking down all those rules of cinema where you had to write it in a certain amount of time. Um, You could only have a certain number of props in it. So if you look at something like Dogville, that Nicole Kidman movie. Right. um, Where it's basically just on a stage. And so it's this entire town, but it's all laid out with chalk lines on the floor. And so. But in, in that movie, it is a. I don't necessarily like the movie, but the performances and the writing are powerful enough that it transcends the scenery, that it transcends right. what's going, what, what you're seeing there. So I think it can work that way. Yeah, I think um, I've actually talked about this with someone else on the podcast about Lars von Trier in particular, and it was notable to me because I've never seen a Lars von Trier movie. Ever. I haven't seen any of them. But really? one, one you're, of the things you're better off. Oh, ouch. One of the things I've, I really liked when I kind of read up about it and heard about it is one of the things they do is they they try to make the camera invisible. Right. Mm-hmm. So you shouldn't ever be aware that you're watching something. You should be immersed in it. That's the whole point, because one of my big pet peeves is anytime like water or blood splashes on a camera, it immediately takes me out of the movie because I'm like, well, mm. that's water on a camera. Like, I know you're trying to make me feel like I'm in there with you, but I don't. So I like the idea behind it. Uh, but everything I've heard about Von Trier from many people also makes me think that I probably wouldn't enjoy a lot of his movies. So I'm I'm kind of stuck in between there. It's it. I mean, it's hard to say until you actually see some of his movies. Right. Um, he's one of those guys that I can I can respect, but I want to respect mm. him from a distance. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I I really I like what you're doing. I like the idea. I think what you're doing is important. Um, but it doesn't mean it's something that I find very entertaining because sure. at the end of the day, it still needs to work as a piece of entertainment. Right. I mean, that is what we're doing. Like that's that's why we're here. Yeah. <laughs> All right, yeah. uh, so let's jump uh, to to the script, to the screenplay, to the writing. So, sure. so what did you think about kind of the the pace of this movie? Does this again, like, does this hold up to modern standards of what kind of we expect going into the movies as far as how quickly it moves? Because I felt like I feel like the second act of this, although is really necessary, feels like it drags a little bit, and you're just kind of waiting to get to that point. And it, it's, it's a part of that tension that it builds, which is helpful. Mm-hmm. But there were moments for me definitely about like, you know, 45 minutes into this movie where I was like, okay, like we need to get to the climax guys. Like, and I could feel the time just kind of ticking away. But once you get to the climax in the movie, um, it, it's, I, I almost feel like that's the part for me where it drags a little bit mm. um, when it does start to get to that ending, because that's the part of it that feels more dated to me. Um, the other sure. elements of it, they feel more natural and it's performance based. And I can, you know, I, I can ride along with that a little bit easier for me. Um, so when it gets to the third act is kind of where it lags. And I think that that is like you were saying, that's the intention of that is to build that tension up so that when you do have this, um, you know, somewhat prolonged sequence in the end, it's really just this <laughs> chase back and forth that's going on right. um, in, in an apartment. Well, that's now we have whole movies off. like that with Don't Breathe. Yeah. We just chase for 80 minutes. <laughs> but, you know, you're going to have a turkey baster dripping with semen um, in a movie like that. So there's going to be elements to that's, it. That's not your, your high bar to pass. <laughs> that's, yeah. So what is it that you feel about the climax is so dated and drags for you? What is it about it? it's exactly that it's that it doesn't have those um i i don't i I think date it's the wrong word it's just it doesn't no i guess it is the right word it just doesn't feel like it's of the time that we're in right now and it doesn't it's not as effective right and so the parts with the performance that work they're not of the time we're in right now but they are effective 
Um, the sort of like you said with the stage combat and that, those kinds of things that exist in this movie, um, they're not of this time either and they don't work. You know, if you go back and you watch the original Godfather and there's that punch that he throws and the um, and when he throws the trash can down on him, he's about oh, 14 yeah. feet off. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's pulls you out of that movie every time. It's not to say that that's an absolute classic that, you know. Right doesn't stand out, but it's not because of the action in it. It's when, you know, at the time when you would go back, when people saw that movie, it was shocking. Um, When people saw Bonnie and Clyde and you see these people get get lit up with bullets, it's very shocking. But when we watch that now, we're desensitized to that. So we are only watching it from a performance standpoint. Right. And those things that worked at the time that were building up to this moment, that was that sort of release for them. It doesn't work. So at the end of the day, it's the performance that carries the film. Right. And the writing, I hear, I guess, as well. So so the gasoline moment doesn't, doesn't work for you? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah. the most – I mean, the stage combat, combat is definitely unintentionally funny, but that moment, like, I laughed out loud and felt bad. <laughs> like, felt bad about myself. Because <laughs> <laughs> she was – I mean, it wasn't like there was anything about the performance that was silly. It is a terrifying mm-hmm. moment when she figures out yes. what it is. But it's something about the delivery of that line. And we talked about kind of this presentational style of acting where, like, you know, if you're going for realism – that's probably never going to happen. You're never going to no. call out the murder weapon of something that's going to happen. <laughs> you know, you're just going to go, oh, shit, and try to run away instead of screaming, gasoline. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, let's hope that that's not how either of us go out because that's, that's fucking embarrassing. Like, <laughs> You know what? Now I'm, I, I'm hoping that happens. I'm kind of – I want that to be my last word. <laughs> I want my last word to be a question mark with the thing Heart that's attack? Like just <laughs> yeah, more likely. <laughs> Except there won't be a question mark there. That'll like, just be like uh, the question. The mark resignation, like, fr- like French fries, thing. red meat. <laughs> Could have been anything. Yeah, but I think I think the best part about the script is something we already mentioned is the the kind of two arcs in this film. One, her gaining this this kind of ability to interact with the world and how how slowly that gets built. And the character of Mike, like who at the beginning you, I mean, you hate as you should. I mean, he's involved in this terrible thing. And then he starts to kind of almost like get under your skin as he's doing the same thing to her, where you see her trusting her, but you can still, you can still understand why she trusts him, especially because she doesn't have the knowledge that you do. So if anything, we are we're more suckers than she is because we kind of buy into his bullshit, even though we know that it's all false, where she right. is being kind of led around in that sequence. But I think that's all that stuff is all really well written. Yeah. And if, if it wasn't, um, the movie would fall apart. Yes. And I think that's what people were gravitating to at the time. And that's why it's considered amongst people of a certain age, a classic. Um, <laughs> but I think that those things, like you said, they're just not going to hold up. I think, the writing here, it's it's very strong, and I would like to see um, and a modern interpretation of this mm. um, without any crazy special effects. Or and no turkey anything, basters? No it's... turkey based or anything like that. I would just like to see this executed yeah. um, with you know somebody that you know that can work in that space a little bit better. Somebody that doesn't have a James Bond background, perhaps. Um, And to see, you know, and even if you could go back and do it with those actors, you know, and maybe tell Arkin to pull it in a little bit. And, you know, remind (laughs) of what movie. No, how dare you? No. Crank it up to 11. Go. Okay, so then if you're doing that, then you recast Audrey Hepburn with Kristen Wiig at that point. Yes, I'm in. This sounds great. (laughs) 
But in all seriousness, if you can you think of like a director who you think would be able to work on this small of a scale? It seems like most directors start out doing small scale stuff and then get scooped up by these uh, by these huge companies. And then they're like, here, yep. do Jurassic World or do Star Wars or do Marvel or DC. So can you think of anyone working right now that would be able to work on this small scale and make it convincing? Um. Yeah. Yeah, there's plenty of people. I think that um, anybody like a Tarantino proved that he can do, um, you know, a very tense movie with the hateful eight in you know, just one location and make it really entertaining. Um, I think that somebody, um, Oh God, what am I? Hang on one second here. Why am I forgetting his name offhand? Um, Paul Thomas Anderson, I think would be able to pull off something very small, even though his films are huge in scale. Most of the time. Um, I think that he has these, moments that are absolutely brilliant that are in these you know small tight moments i think something like punch drunk love is a very powerful film and that's really most of it is just in you know that warehouse for the most part or you know around a dinner table um i I think somebody like todd salons could probably do you know Mm -hmm. something really interesting with material like this it it would be a little bit more detached and ironic and they'd have tight (laughs) jeans and you know striped sweatshirts on. nothing wrong with that that's fine (laughs) i think that he could do something interesting here also that i think pretty much anybody that know any director that is worth their salt would be able to work with material like this right um the ones that are visually dependent on these spectacle, I think would have t- a tough time with this kind of material. Um, somebody like a, and it's the way that it normally builds up with the Marvel and DC uh, of directors. You know, they start with something small and they realize, well, you know, this guy can get the performance. We can handle all the special effects and all the green screening and all that stuff. We just need him to work on the character stuff. And we'll have, you know, the ADs around him that have worked on every movie and we'll guide him through the rest of this process. When you right. see something like Hunt for the Wilder People and you imagine mm. that guy doing a fucking Thor movie. <laughs> it's <you know>? insane. <laughs> it's, I can't even I can't even deal with that. I'd be interested to see if a director like and this is a big stretch. I'll just put it out there right now. But if a director sure. like like Todd Haynes could get a hold of something like this, Todd Haynes, who did Carol. Yeah, yeah. And you talk about distant and that's definitely there. But it'd be interesting to see what he would do with a film that has a female lead character but is surrounded by pretty much all men and you get a little bit of that in some of the scenes in carol but usually it's just about carol and therese so i I think that would be interesting to see if he could handle something that intimate um where he has intimate moments in his films but there is that 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 distance that he kind of constantly creates in his films and so with having that sort of thematic approach to the material is that something where you would want to cut out the husband from the film yeah i um, think so because that okay yeah yeah who needs him so that it would <laughs> just one more well, man I mean, because <laughs> they, that, that's a semi-positive male influence in the film so get out uh, <laughs> <laughs> only positive male influence are liars that's the only ones who won this movie <laughs> absolutely all right uh so let's talk about production value so uh it's always difficult to talk about production value in older movies because we talked about you have to understand the context. Like you're not going to talk about Casablanca and be like, well, that plane looked really fake. Well, yeah, it's like, you know, the, the plane flying well, you can overhead. get wrapped up in it and appreciate production value, though. Sure. I mean, that, sure. that's I think that's bullshit, because if you if you can't go back and, and like, uh, OK, 
to me, it's bullshit because as far as the production value of things, if you're not able to go back and look at Ben Hur and realize Jesus Christ, that's something epic. You can't look at Lawrence of Arabia and realize that you're watching something truly special. And you know, then get off my amazing. show. If you can't yeah, understand, two, if can't, get out. <laughs> 2001 or yeah. any of these films, you know, the, the list true. goes on and on and on. Um, I think that it's easier to hide production now, and because but isn't there are a difference between looking at epics like Ben Hur, Lawrence of Arabia, two thousand one, and smaller scale films like this, where uh, maybe they didn't have look, the budget? Look at Breakfast at Tiffany's, something like that. The production in, of that is That's beautiful. True. Look at something like um, uh, look at It's a Wonderful Life. Um, I, mean, I will you can go through all these films <laughs> <Yeah>. someday. <laughs> no, no, that's one of my favorite movies. I will watch that okay. pretty much any time of year, uh, especially this time of year. So what did you think yeah. of the production value in this film in particular? Um, it's fine. It's right. it's an apartment. So <laughs> right. it's, it's hard it feels, to fuck up. Like it, that's. <laughs> well, you, you can fuck it up. Um, it, the, you know what the nice thing about it is? It actually feels like a realistic sized apartment. It does. Um, it's not this sprawling, huge kind of... Uh, goes on for kind of like Oscar the Grouch's, you know, right. trash can. You go inside of, or, bedrooms or, or, and, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You go inside Snoopy's doghouse, which is kind of something that I think a lot of films yeah. do. I think actually in. that's a really good point that you bring up because I think it, it also not only is it realistic, but it helps the movie because if you mm-hmm. have this sprawling set, then there's like, there's too many places for her to hide. There's too many right. places to get away. Whereas this is like, uh, there's there's a bedroom there and there's a door and there's a kitchen and that's it. So, yep. you know, you got nowhere to go but to smell the gasoline. That's 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 it. You are <laughs> you are stuck in this moment, which I really like, which I think helps, again, build that tension. And it's it's appropriate. So, yeah, you could say that there's not much to the production of this, the production value of it, but it's intentional. So I think it's right. successful in what it was trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. All right. Uh, so now uh, we move on to uh, to our favorite scenes. So what is one of your favorite scenes from Wait Until Dark? Um. Oh, God, let's see. Favorite scene in the movie is probably we kind of touched on it, but it is the uh, the part where Alan Arkin is talking about the fingerprints and the guy, the kind of the, mm. the chubby guy starts going around. And <laughs> it's a great comedic like to... moment, but not over the top comedic. It's like, yeah. it's like you could it, see that actually happening. It was enjoyable. It just works. And it's, it's the, that kind of moment where it, the way that those two play off of each other, I kind of want them to go off and have their own little road movie yes. sometimes. <laughs> and their, their interplay really works for me because they, they just feel like they're in the same movie. And so the, their interactions are probably some of my favorite stuff in it. Um, you mentioned also the um, the scene with the girl when they discover her in the closet. I, that, that one's always one that I dug. And yeah. Um, yeah, th- there's, there's quite a few moments in the movie that I like. So, um, the gasoline is not on the no? high end. <laughs> okay. How about most memorable scenes? Cause it's definitely <laughs> that. I don't know if it's good, but I don't think, I mean, I think in 10 years, I'm going to, if anybody mentions this movie, that is the first thing that is going to come into my mind. So, okay. So what is there something that's comparable in your mind that when you can think about a movie that's, that is pretty decent, but has like a sort of a button at the end, that's that bad to you. I I don't know. Like I'd have to think about it longer, but I don't 
think so. I'm sure there are. I'm sure I've seen movies where I'm like, oh, God, that ruined it. But it this really stood out to me where I was like, OK, you know, I'm, I'm you know, at some points giving it a pass for the time and the context. And, and then I start to get into it and it's interesting and these character arcs are great. And then that moment happened and I immediately texted you as I was watching it because I was just I like paused the movie because I was like, I have to I have to like gather myself together again to continue watching this movie because it is so over the top to me but yeah i, I can you are there any that jump to your mind uh of movies you've as seen as far as a, the the you know i was trying to think about that while you're saying it um an ending that just like really ruins it i can think of movies that have been saved by endings right that those come to mind a lot easier for me movies that otherwise wouldn't have been very good but they pull it all together in that last couple frames and it really works out and I think that's probably because I'm usually pulling for a movie. I want Come on, movies to be good. I, I want to enjoy them. What's and the so first the movie ones... that comes to your mind that is saved by a good ending? Um, I would say uh, there's uh, probably something like Saw is a really bad movie. Hmm. The um, ending's pretty yeah. great, though. <laughs> the, the, it, it, like, you know, Danny Glover's performance in it is terrible. Yes. Um, Carrie Always is terrible in it. <laughs> um, the The gore in it is really bad. But the first time I saw that movie and the ending of it, I walked out of that theater feeling fully satisfied yeah, because same. a guy stood up and that was it. And I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. It's, That's amazing. Yep. Um, I would say something like uh, Usual Suspects is not a great movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's deeply flawed throughout, but it pulls it together in that last little moment and kind of makes everything work that happened before it. Um, Sixth Sense is the same way. A lot of twist movies where yeah. they, that's just kind of predicated on that one thing. But we're kind of talking about the inverse of that, where the right. twist is that it makes the movie suck. At the end. <laughs> yeah. And that's <laughs> I mean, I've seen that. To focus on- I'm trying to remember the name of this movie. Maybe you'll know because it's a fucking horror movie. And I just you're my yeah, horror sure, guru. There is a you know, one of these, uh, you know, the devil has come down and has inhabited someone's body. And I think Winona Ryder was in it maybe and and the end of the movie she's in the car and you think everything is fine and then they they'd given this signal earlier in the movie that when all the electronics go haywire that's when the devil is there and the electronics go haywire in the car and then it and i literally remember vividly sitting in the theater going don't you fucking roll the credits and they did and i was like god damn it and it went from a movie that was like not good but serviceable and then like now just fuck this movie like (laughs) ruined so that was even worse than that moment in wait until dark see I kind of like it when they do that, when they have the don't you dare end it right now and you pull it out from under me. I, I kind of like that moment in the end of movies. But you know what? I actually um, <laughs> uh, there, there's a French movie that uh, have you seen them? No, I haven't. Um, that's one that is typical home invasion stuff. But mm-hmm. the ending to it pulls it together in a way that makes it so disturbing and so wonderful that you want to go back and watch it again. And you realize something about the killers the entire time that you didn't know the first time around mm, nice. that just makes it so disturbing and terrible and terrifying. And just, yeah, it's, I think it's like 10 years old, 2006. I think it's a movie called them. That's one that just right. really pulled. I think that's probably, yeah, there's a good recommendation. Okay. So the movie I was trying to think of with Winona Ryder is called lost souls. Uh, and it's, a haven't pe- seen it. it is a piece of shit. Don't watch it. It's from 2000. <laughs> 
don't watch that movie. Uh, she so, had some dark years there for a little while. I think they're continuing. I, I, you and I disagree on her performance in Stranger Things, which I abhor. I think it's fucking terrible, and you love How it. Dare so, you? How terrible. Dare you, sir. Us, you She's know, fantastic in that. Whatever. She's great there. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so the only other scene that really stands out to me that um, that we haven't talked about. There's a scene near the beginning of the film. There's this interaction between her and her husband in in a dark room where he's kind of guiding her mm-hmm. through this process. And I loved yeah, yeah. that moment. It was really sweet and really kind of set the stage for why it's so scary that he's not there for her during this mm-hmm. moment, because I think you have to care about that relationship and their interaction to, to really enjoy this movie because otherwise you start feeling like, well, this guy's just a fucking jerk. Like he just keeps yeah. leaving and just like do it yourself, you know, like figure it out. But I think that scene really solidifies their relationship and it's a really efficient scene it takes like two minutes and then like it's solid and you know that that relationship matters so that was the other one that stood out to me and it seems like something that you could do effectively in a theater um as far as having the the voice off stage kind of thing and you could mess with the lighting to really pull it down and give her perspective and i think that it could be a very powerful piece in a theater yeah absolutely all right. So the last thing uh, to talk about for the movie is the theme. So we're talking about trust. And I, I remember being surprised because um, I read some reviews after I saw the movie about this, about the kind of the negative reviews are like, oh, God, she trusts these people so easily. She's so stupid, blah, blah, blah. So what was your experience of watching it, especially like maybe remembering back to eighth grade the first time you watch it? Did you feel like did you feel like she was too trustworthy or did you feel like it was it was kind of where she should be at. Well, okay. So eighth grade, going back to that a little bit hard to remember exactly what my impression was of it. Um, I can make assumptions about the douchebag that I was then versus the douchebag that I am now and do some, you know, basic arithmetic and see if I can figure it out. But I, I think that the moment there's logic leaps that you have to take in any movie like this. Um, I was reading some, I think it was Ebert when I read his review of this he was talking about the thing that he got caught up on was that she didn't lock the doors and that's all this movie would have just ended (laughs) that kind of thing didn't really get to me so with the trust element to it um that wasn't something that necessarily stood out right away it's something that i think i got a little bit later because i was more apt to buy into things like that those sort of leaps in logic were i don't know they, they weren't as apparent to me Right. Um, so I'm I'm okay with having an innocent at the center of a film. Mm-hmm. Um, to having somebody that's not completely jaded. That you know, th- yeah, she lives in a big city and she should probably be a little bit more wary of the world around her. But I, I don't know. I, I'm okay with spending some time with somebody like that that has kindness in their heart that makes them more likable. Honestly, because right. if you center this movie around somebody that has this detached cynicism that's scared of the world, um, that sort of that, that you end up in a panic room territory with a movie like that. Right. You end up with a center character there that has this sort of frenzied nature already and that their ideas are just being you know reinforced through the actions of the movie. With this, it's more disturbing and more devastating because she doesn't have that worldview. And I think that's a far more effective character arc. Right. Yeah. I think it was interesting when I was thinking about this movie in terms of trust because it – when researching trust, it actually gave me uh, a lot more empathy – for this character that I might have had, I might've been kind of jaded to be like, will you fucking lock your door? Jesus. I lock my door when I'm, when I'm home alone and I have vision. So I'm not, and I don't live in a place where people just walk in. Did you say when you, um, when you have visions, 
No, that's not what I said. And I have vision, unlike her who is blind. <laughs> Let's not talk about that. That's a whole nother episode. Uh, but, you know, thinking about trust, and trust is really, when you boil it down, it's a social contract, right? Yep. We believe in general uh, that we're safe. I think I think people, like when you cross the street, when you drive your car, you you operate under these rules that like, oh, the light is red on that side. That person is going to stop. So I'm going to go through this green light, because if you lived in a way where you didn't trust anybody, you have this kind of complete paralysis and this inaction and you can't do anything. So trust is necessary. So I kind of kept that in mind. And then also thinking about the fact that she is newly blind and she hasn't lived in this yeah. space for that long. And she understands, I think, at the point of the beginning of the movie that she does need assistance, that she does need help. So, of course, she's going to want to trust people because at the point in the beginning of the film, she can't do a lot of these things on her own. She hasn't gotten to that point yet. So I think her her being uh, her being trusting makes perfect sense for her character. And like you said, if she's a cynic, then why it's, it's harder for us to care about her. But because she mm-hmm. is an innocent, because she does think the best of people, even when people are doing terrible things, like even some scenes with, with this kid who lives upstairs who like is kind of a pain in the ass, she still thinks the best of her in kind of all situations. And and I like that we have a character like that. And I think it works for the movie because it's in direct contrast to everybody else who she comes in contact yeah. with. And I think that's that's something that um it's a choice that you make as a human being. You decide to live in your your reality is sort of designed by your own perception. And so if you choose to live in a world where you can trust your neighbors and you can trust the best intentions of the people that you run into, the people are genuinely going to be pretty good. And if you believe that, um, then you can go through life appropriately. But I, I think that people will say that, but they don't actually believe it. They'll give lip service to right. it, but they'll buy a gun. They'll say that, but they'll buy an alarm system. They'll say that, but they'll put up fences. Um, they don't really trust the people around them. They don't trust their intentions. They're you know, scared of the people around them. And I think the world would probably be a letter, little bit better if we had more people like, you know, that were less cynical. So be like Audrey Hepburn. That is, that's what we're going yeah. with. That's, all right. be, well, I think, I think that's an intentional metaphor in the movie, the yeah. idea that she's blind. Yep. I mean, I think that, that they're trying, that Definitely. she is innocent and they're playing with that. So, yeah, I, th- I think that you should try to be like her because in the end, you're still going to win. Yeah. All right. Uh, I'm glad you brought up uh, putting up fences because that's a perfect transition to the next thing we're talking about, <laughs> uh, which is the movie we're pairing this with, which is Fences. Uh, so are you looking forward to seeing this movie? Is this something on your list? That, like, oh, I really want to see this. No, I have. I <laughs> <laughs> it should just end the episode right there. No, I'm good. <laughs> it's I. This, this is going to be one of those movies that I'm not surprised. Um, it, what's going to happen with this is going to be like what happens with a lot of movies, like this type of movie that Fences is. That it seems to be to me rather where it's a movie that I'll actually enjoy, but something about the marketing mm. this time of year tends to distance me from it. Sure. Where. It's it is the award season push. It's that kind of movie where it feels like this is the movie that as an adult you need to go see right now, and this is the one that's going to make you feel right. this, this, and that. And I mean, I I really like Denzel's movies. I enjoy pretty much everything he's he does, even in bad movies. He is always yeah. entertaining. He's always, even something like John Q is not a good movie, but he's pretty damn great in it. Right. Um. So he's he's one of those people that just carries himself so well that you want to. At least for me, I'm compelled by him. I, I always want right. to you know spend an hour and a half, two hours with him. But 
something about this one. It's just not something that I'm readily interested in right now. But I know that when I see it, I'm probably going to enjoy it. I'm probably going to love it and ask and question why did I not see this immediately when it came out? Right. It does seem like so. But go ahead. No, 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 no. Yeah, it's just I don't know why I have that disconnect, but it's something that happens a lot for me. Well, I think I think there's a there's a certain cynicism to this time of year, especially within like the last. I don't. I think this seems to be a relatively new thing, like the last five or ten years, where it's like everything comes out from November twentieth to December thirty first, and it's like every good movie is like out at one time, so you can't possibly yeah. see everything you need to see. And some of these movies are like, oh, well, you're just putting this out for the for the Oscar nomination which i think is the case in this movie because nothing about this screams christmas release like this is not a movie like <laughs> you know what i'd like to see on christmas the breakdown of the american family like that's that sounds great i think it's a little too close to my family christmases i don't really need that <laughs> like that's okay uh but i am excited to see to see this movie mainly because of Denzel because i do enjoy him in pretty much everything but Mike and I talked about this, how he seems to be in this period of his career where he's going to play like these kind of action characters where he doesn't right. – it looks like he doesn't have to put a lot of effort into it. Like if you look at The Magnificent Seven and things like The Equalizer, like it's it, – I mean it sounds shitty, but it feels like a little below him where you're like, really? Is this what you want to do? And it's good to see him back in he, this like – He deserves re- to send his kids to college. No, absolutely. But I think in terms of his kind of acting prowess, like I don't think it's taking a lot for him to do those movies, whereas this feels like more effortful and will be more enjoyable for me to watch sure and he's um yeah he, he's he's one of the I, I, it's the kind of movie i would like to see him do more than the magnificent right. seven i haven't watched that so i haven't seen that one either um but it used to be that the it was as soon as august was through september is when the oscar bait started to come out and that's right. when the adult movies started coming out and you'd have you know four and a half months of this time period you know i'd go through january and you'd have all these great movies coming out at that time period and during and it's just that window got smaller and smaller yeah, and no. smaller <laughs> and now it doesn't it doesn't exist because right. it's star star wars open last weekend yep. Yep. like if you actually if you look at the box office and see what's actually playing at the multiplex right now the the oscar stuff it's now it's playing third and fourth fiddle so it's not even it yeah, and, really it, and it's there it. for a week so if you miss it in that one week sorry <laughs> Time to wait then, for the re-release. Like sort, sort of. There's stuff that does seem to transcend that, though. Yes, like, yes. Like a movie like Manchester by the Sea seems to be finding its ground and finding its footing slowly. Um, the Wild La La Land release seemed like it got pushed back a little bit. I don't it know did. what's going on. Yeah, there. it's okay. not even it's not even fully out at this point. Like it's out where I am, thankfully, because mm-hmm. I, I live in society, not like in Kentucky where Mike doesn't get to see it. <laughs> uh, but I think for the rest of the world, it comes out basically Christmas week, which is a perfect okay. Christmas movie. Like that, that yep. feels like a Christmas release, but I think that one's going to find a foothold, I think, because it's, I mean, not like the movie doesn't mean anything, but it's lighter fare. Like you can, mm-hmm. it's approachable for kind of everybody where a movie like Fences feels like, oh, this is a serious movie. Like we got to really sit down and, and really focus on this. You can't walk in kind of half watching it and just enjoying yourself. It's, you know, it can be effortful. Do, do you go to the theater on Christmas day? I do actually every Christmas so, day. Yeah. Oh yeah, same here. So, yeah. what's one of your favorite Christmas movies? That's not a Christmas movie, oh. but you saw it on Christmas Day and it stands out as a Christmas God, movie. God, that's to a you. good question. I don't even know. I, I I'll, I'll go ahead and give you mine. Go Just ahead. A, it's a kind of leading you my, into my own answer, I guess. But um, Jackie Brown was one oh, I saw that's on a Christmas good one. Day, and I fucking love that movie, and I always associate it with Christmas, even though it's absolutely not a Christmas movie, but it's one that will always have that place to. Okay, that one stands out. Catch me if you can. 
definitely stands out oh, yeah. as a yeah. as a Christmas release that was that was pretty impressive and something that that I'm glad I got to see in the theater when it first came out for sure because I yeah. you know immediately I saw that think, one in the theater too yeah that's a good one all right well, what happened to Spielberg he's doing the fucking BFG you know making a bunch yeah. of shit like. I don't know. Spielberg. He earned it though, man. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, that's the thing I've, I've had discussions with these fucking idiots. I follow online. Uh, most of them very young. Right. And telling me that Spielberg is terrible and he's he's a hack. Yeah, exactly. Like literally believe this. And like somebody actually told me that 50 shades of gray is better than any Spielberg movie I ever made. Like I had this conversation. This is a real thing. And I was like, and I literally, I literally just retweeted it and said, I hate Twitter. Like, that's how I felt. I was like, (laughs) fuck this. I'm out. Like, you're going to tell me it's, I didn't want to get into a conversation with you because you're clearly, you're not viewing things with a, with a critical eye because Jaws is a great film. You know, and he's made he's Dude, made his worst he's movie made, like, is better than that. Yes, I mean, and he's made probably. I mean, I'd have to, I'd have to go through the list. But he's probably made ten certifiable classics, like five okay. star uh, just, amazing. Just off movies. the top of your mind, uh, top of your head. Okay, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yep. Okay, so Jaws, Jaws. Indiana Jones. Yeah, Schindler's um, List. I, I mean, it's Schindler's List. Sure, Munich. Yeah, just go on and on. I mean, like Munich. I love Munich. Great um, fucking movie. Jesus Christ. I, I even love the remake of War of the Worlds, and people hate that movie, but I love that. Stupid I am movie. one of those people that hates that movie. I've actually, I, actually, it's one of those movies. I I feel like I painted myself into a corner because I haven't seen it since it came out, and I fucking hated it then. So now, anytime someone brings it up, I'm like, fuck that movie. But I kind of want to rewatch it. Uh, but then I kind of I don't want to get in that position where I'm going to tell people like actually it's pretty good because I don't want to I don't want to move it back I'm just going to not think, tell do people. Do you think there's there's actually people with the list and going I wonder if Dave's thoughts on where the world you should talk, talk to Andrew from AB Film Review yes <laughs> yes there are people like that unbelievably so it's kind of tragic that that is a thing I can answer yes to. So there it is. All right. Uh, so before before we leave, uh, why don't you tell people where to find your podcast? It all of a sudden seems to have episodes now. So I've been doing it for a little while now. I think I've been doing my show longer than yours, but there's only 30 episodes right now <laughs> that are up. Because at some point I decided just kind of like burn the whole house down and left two just episodes up. Quality over um, quantity. That's what you're going for. Uh, no, not really, because I still leave episodes up. So if I was going for quality over quantity, there's delete. That, I would just go. <laughs> I would put links to like WTF up or something, I guess. I don't think that counts as quality either. Oh, see, you're cynic. He's much better at this shit than I am. Wait a minute. Because I don't like Mark Maron, I'm a cynic. I feel like he is the no, ultimate no, no. It, cynic. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Uh, he is absolutely a cynic, but he has some pretty engaging conversations. I don't care about him as a person. I think he he's curious enough to do a show like that. And I yeah, don't. That's true. It, he's you have to have a certain you have to want to listen to people to yeah. do this. Um, to actually be genuinely curious about people. And he is curious. He, he's a douchebag. Sure. Yes. And I never listened to the intro to the show, but he has interesting people. That is a smart decision. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but your show, where can we find it uh, online oh, or on sure. Twitter? You can go to followingfilms.com. You can go to following underscore films on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash following films. Uh, yeah. Just go on iTunes, find it. Um, there's, as we mentioned earlier, I think uh, there's a recent episode up there where I was able to interview one of the cast members from uh, 
La La Land. I really liked that one. I thought she was a really fun guest. So yeah, yeah it's it's pretty much coming up either one or two a week at this point. Yeah, I would highly recommend that episode because of the episode I'm going to throw in uh, at the back end of this episode our our mini review of of La La Land because I just want to talk about that movie every day. Fuck all these there other movies. Let's <laughs> talk about La La Land. All right. Oh. Yeah, go ahead. A side note, yeah, there's one that I have coming up next week that I want people to check out. Um, I have uh, Bob from Donnie Darko on next week. I'm pretty excited about that one. So I have the rabbit from Donnie Darko. Awesome. All right, so go check that out. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode. We've made it to 200. That's pretty cool. So I just wanted to send out a special thank you to anyone who's listened to one episode or 200 episodes. I really appreciate you being there and being a part of this, because if no one was listening, I wouldn't be recording. So thank you. Uh, And if there's anything that you want out of the show in the next 200 or however many episodes we do, tell me. You can, of course, contact me on Twitter at PCKStudy. You can email me at popculturecasestudy at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page, all kinds of ways to reach me. So do that. And if you would like to help out the show, there's ways to do that, too. There's listening. There's telling your friends about it. There's connecting all those ways I mentioned, or you can put your money towards it, which would be phenomenal. You can go to patreon.com slash study, and there you can donate on a per-episode basis and even get some pretty cool rewards for your donation. So the next time you hear me, we will hopefully be doing an episode on fences, but it will depend on timing and Christmas and co-hosts and all those kind of things. So maybe we'll do that, or maybe the next time you hear me, it'll be an older movie. Who knows? All right, so that's it for this week. And until next time, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. Yeah. Uh, so, but uh, saw La La Land and everything is okay. Like everything was so much better. Like I, <laughs> like this is. <laughs> it's such a great movie. It, it is it's absolutely fantastic. And, like it's, I needed yeah, some you're... hope. Like this was this is what I needed. You know, like oh, it's fucking fan. And this is the movie I've been looking forward to all year. So I was like, this better not suck. I'm gonna be really pissed if this is not good because a lot of movies have un- been underwhelming this year for me. Yes, and it's where like the surprises are the ones that have been good, like movies mm-hmm. I didn't know existed, like Hell or High Water and The Handmaiden and The Wailing, like these movies sure. that I was like, huh, I didn't even know they were coming out, and then I was like, this is amazing, and then all these other like big movies where I'm like, oh, I guess those all right, like it's fine. <laughs> Not impressed. Yeah, if if you at the beginning of the year, if you were telling me that one of my favorite movies of the year, without telling me the director, was going to be a musical with Ryan Gosling <laughs> and Emma Stone, I no? was, I, I would have said no. That's probably. I mean, I might, I might, might be enjoy okay, it, but it's not but... going to be for me, really. Yeah. But I mean, it's and it's funny that you say that it gives you hope because it's this movie that's about ambition and putting that in the face of love and kind yeah. of you know that the ambition is more important than that. Um, and that while there is a little, it's a bittersweet pill to swallow. It's one that you might have to do if you really want to follow your dreams. And yep. that's not exactly a hopeful message. Well, it's not, but I think the way the movie ended by giving you like what could have been, you have that montage and then you have this moment of understanding mm-hmm. between the two of them yeah. makes all the difference. Is he, if he was like weeping and she slammed the door and the movie ended, it's like, <laughs> oh, I don't know. I like this movie well, anymore. <laughs> well, it was so brilliant that montage at the end oh. because. There's that part of me that's like, I just want them to get together. 
Yes. You know, I just want to, I'm a sucker and I just yeah, want that same. moment. And he starts, he starts giving it to me and I go, this Wait. feels inauthentic. You yeah. fucker. You're, you're giving me what I want so that I can know that it's not what I really needed. And yeah, it's, it's, just it's, brilliant. it's an interesting feeling because as you watch the movie, you start thinking like, oh, maybe I was rooting for the wrong thing. Because like you're rooting yeah. for them to get their dreams and then they get it. But it's not what you envisioned. <laughs> like yep. it's, it's like, oh, wait a minute. God damn you, David Chazelle. Like <laughs> well, the, this the, for moments, me, but. the moments where you actually start getting into their relationship aren't really until the second half of the film yeah. when they, you know, or even towards the end of the second act when they have their first fight. Um, they, and you see that and that's really grounded in reality. There's no musical aspect to it. Yep. And I think that's the reality of their relationship much more so than any of this fantasy idea of it. And yep. just that heightened element. So yeah. See, this is the movie we should be talking. I know. About right. Tonight. Well, I just listened to your, uh, your episode, that interview you did. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, so it was fresh on my mind and you brought up something that, that I didn't, I, I don't think I was able to put thoughts to or put words to, but was one of my favorite moments of the movie was that moment before they hold hands in the movie theater. Yeah. And I haven't felt like that innocent in you. Like yeah. you don't see that where it's like, Oh, I might get to hold her hand. Like that's what you feel like <laughs> when you're 15 you've never had a girl. And, and it was like, this is amazing. Like this is, yeah. and it captures that, that excitement, that almost like nauseous excitement that comes with the first time you make physical contact with a person that you care about. And I was like, Oh man, they, they got it. Like they hit it. And that's not an easy thing to do. Well, and it's also not something that most movies that are made nowadays will dwell on. Ah, we're too um, cynical. You, when are they going to well, fuck? Yeah, you'll, <laughs> like, you'll, 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 you'll dwell on the shower scene. You'll dwell on right? them, like on Viggo Mortensen going down on her on the stairwell, you know, something like that. That's that's what we tend to focus on. And yep. to focus on that is so much more relatable, honestly. Yeah. Um, because not everybody when, has gone down on someone on a stairwell, but pretty much everyone has held someone's hand. Like that's <laughs> – we can all connect <laughs> to that, I hope. And – and honestly, that's the stuff that matters. That's yes. the stuff that you carry with you, you know, when you're kind of – When you're on your uh, deathbed, you're me. not remembering, yeah. oh, that one time we 69. Like that's not, that's <laughs> not what you're going to remember. Like <laughs> Unless somebody farts or something, then it might be memorable. Right. Well, then that's the marriage moment right there. That's – if you stay with someone after that, you know you're meant to be. That's <laughs> – oh, my god. All right. <laughs> I'm just going to put that at the end of the episode. Like here's You're welcome. Here's Chris's review of <laughs> review of La La Land. You, you know what? You, you you actually you make a good point there without really meaning to that I don't deserve to talk about La La Land <laughs> because within 30 seconds I'm talking about, you know, queefing and farting while 69ing. That actually sounds like me though, making a good point without trying to. That's it's usually just, you know, you know, like the movie we'll talk about today, just stumbling around in the dark and <laughs> like, oh shit, I found something. This is amazing. <laughs> that is appropriate. 